Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, President Biden's approval rating hits an all-time low. Why are voters dissatisfied and how's the president's responding trailing behind Trump in polls? Iris Tao in Washington, D.C. Former President Trump is lashing out at President Biden's immigration policy, causing the Biden campaign to compare him to Hitler. Why? NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Weekend negotiations on border security and Ukraine aid came up with no tangible results. Senators cite progress, but some are casting doubt on the likelihood of a deal before the year's end. Melina Weisskup reports. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visits Israel. What message does he send and what's the plan to address attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea? More companies, including oil giant BP, are now avoiding the Red Sea because of those attacks. What effect will this have on price of oil and consumer goods? Using legislation to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. A congressman says diversity, equity and inclusion measures are ultimately responsible for the increase in anti-Jewish hate. Arian Postar brings us details of the new bill. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The White House touting the economy in its year-end messaging campaign as President Biden's approval ratings hit an all-time low. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao brings us this report. As President Biden ramps up his 2024 campaign, the White House today sent out an end-of-year memo highlighting President Biden's achievements in 2023, in particular over the economy. It writes that President Biden's, quote, fought to grow our economy and delivered the strongest recovery in the developed world. It goes on to accuse Republicans of trying to block the administration's efforts in lowering costs. But these arguments might not be gaining much traction with voters. A new poll released today by Mon University shows that Biden's approval rating has dropped to 34%, the lowest over his three years of presidency. More than two-thirds of the over 800 Americans polled say they disapprove of Biden's handling of inflation and immigration. Other recent polls by CNN and the New York Times shows that Biden's trailing behind Trump in key battleground states. And President Biden, meanwhile, telling reporters on Sunday that they're looking at the wrong polls. Biden's public response, meanwhile, comes as a new Washington Post report today. It says that President Biden is getting increasingly frustrated by his dismal poll numbers and has asked his team what they were doing about it. The White House, meanwhile, would not confirm the report and has been telling us at press briefings that polling numbers right now would not be able to predict what's happening in 2024. Tiff. Former President Trump's attorneys are asking a judge to dismiss the Georgia election case on First Amendment grounds. The motion argues that the charges are aiming at stifling his right to free speech. Trump's lawyer Steve Sadow said that the former president's claims about voter fraud were directed at state legislatures. He added that core political speech shouldn't be criminalized by the state even if it's false. On top of that, at a recent hearing, the attorney said Trump would seek to dismiss charges based on presidential immunity. 
Worth noting, Trump has made a similar argument in his federal case, but was turned down by a district judge. He is now appealing. Meanwhile, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' request to move his charges from state to federal court has been thwarted. The appeals judges said that the statute doesn't apply to former officials. In Reno, thousands cheered former President Trump's stance on immigration. He warned that hidden threats are infiltrating America. He said they are very, very bad. NTD's Arlene Richards has more details. President Trump is pledging to bring the U.S. back. Not one thing has gotten better under crooked Joe Biden. In Nevada Sunday, Trump lashed out at President Biden's immigration policies. You're also much, much safer when President Trump was in the White House. Drugs, criminals, gang members and terrorists are pouring into our country at record levels. We've never seen anything like it. They're taking over our cities. The former president cited troubling situations involving illegal immigrants. Just days ago, we learned that an illegal alien wanted for murder in Mexico secretly violated our border and was discovered in Las Vegas. They believe he's killed two people. The focus on immigration comes as the Biden administration works with Congress to negotiate a border security deal. Shifting to a tougher border policy could gain Biden more moderate and independent votes in the general election. Trump told a record-breaking crowd in Reno that there are hints of a hidden threat infiltrating America. You know, they're coming in 27,000 Chinese men aged 20 to 24, 25, no women, no older people, no younger people, about 20 to 24, 25 years old, the perfect age for an army. Trump emphasized his intention to clamp down on illegal immigration, despite facing criticism for some of his remarks, like telling a New Hampshire audience that illegal immigration was, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. The Biden campaign said in a statement that Trump was sounding like Adolf Hitler, who advocated for pure German bloodlines. But Trump's advocates say the phrase shouldn't be taken literally. Since 2016, Trump has been reciting a song about a woman who rescues a poisonous snake. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman, cried the vicious snake. The snake bites the woman after she rescues him. Trump presents the poem as a cautionary tale about harboring illegal immigrants. He told the Reno audience, it's a metaphor of what's going on at your border, and it's a metaphor as to what will happen in Reno, in Nevada, and all over the place. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Negotiations on Ukraine aid and border security are on thin ice. Progressives expressed dismay with President Biden's willingness to cut a deal on border security. Meanwhile, Republicans are insisting on holding the line with their demands. NTD's congressional correspondent Melina Weiskop has more on where the cracks are showing. Senators are back on Capitol Hill today after key negotiators spent the weekend trying to find common ground on making policy changes at the southern border. This Republicans are demanding in order to win their votes for Ukraine aid. Some Republican demands include things such as making changes to the asylum policy as well as expanding deportations and detentions, among others. These demands drawing ire from the progressive wing of the Democrat Party, showing a split between President Biden and his base. The chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus pleaded with President Biden not to cave to Republican demands that she describes as racist reform. 
I wish that they were not demanding that we settle one of the most difficult and vexing domestic political issues in order to save Ukraine and Europe. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer delaying the holiday recess this week to find a solution. Senators say there was progress in the talks over this weekend. And I'm encouraged by our colleagues' commitment to keep making steady progress. But they won't go into much detail beyond that, casting doubt on the possibility of reaching a deal soon. Even some, like Senator Lindsey Graham, outright saying we're not anywhere close to a deal. It'll go into next year. The White House has pointed fingers at House Republicans for already leaving D.C. for their holiday recess without sticking around to wait for the Senate to reach a compromise. But the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has pushed back, saying that he's been clear with the White House from the beginning that strong border measures are needed in order to win enough Republican support for Ukraine aid. Now a conservative group led by Senator Ron Johnson is requesting that the entire Republican conference meet to discuss the conditions of the deal no earlier than January 8th, further hinting that a Ukraine border deal may be just out of reach by this Christmas. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin today visited Israel for the second time since the war began. This comes as the U.S., Israel and Qatar negotiate a potential hostage deal. Hamas should never again be able to project terror from Gaza into the sovereign state of Israel. And we will continue to work together for a safer, more secure future for Israel and a brighter future for the Palestinians. During his meeting with Israeli leaders on Monday, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin repeated that U.S. commitment to Israel was unwavering. He said the U.S. will continue to provide military equipment, help Israel free hostages, and also get humanitarian aid into Gaza. Austin and Israeli officials discussed a post-war plan for Gaza. They also addressed intensifying attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels on international shipping in the Red Sea. Austin says he is convening a meeting on Tuesday with his counterparts in the Middle East and beyond to respond to the issue. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu applauded the move. This is a battle against the Iranian axis, Iranian axis of terror, which is now threatening to close the maritime strait of Bab el-Mandeb. This threatens the freedom of navigation of the entire world. I appreciate the fact that you are taking action to uh, open that strait. On the same day, CIA Director William Burns met with the head of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency and Qatar's prime minister for hostage talks in Warsaw, Poland. The Biden administration said they are hoping the talks will lead to another hostage and ceasefire deal. I know uh, uh, Brett McGurk and, and David Satterfield continue to work this almost by the hour to see if we can't get another pause in place and another hostage deal executed. Uh, but as I said at the at the top here, of the gaggle, I, I can't report to you a, a date certain uh, or, or or tell you in good faith uh, that there is an, another deal that's imminent. Hamas said they are open to talks, but there will be no negotiations on hostage deals until Israel ends its war in Gaza. The terrorist group on Monday released a video of three elderly Israeli hostages. In it, they pleaded with the Israeli government for their release. The Israeli military responded. The video Hamas released in the past hour is an evil terror video. It demonstrates Hamas' brutality toward elderly civilians who are innocent and in need of medical attention. 
An investigation is underway in Israel after the military mistakenly killed three hostages in Gaza. The Israeli military said the three men were shirtless and waving a white flag. They had also used leftover food to make signs calling for help. The Israeli Defense Forces chief of staff reminded troops to, quote, use your head and take two seconds. He said it's against the military's own rules to shoot those who are surrendering. I'm telling you, whoever is confused here, even those who fought us and now lay down their arms and raise their hands, we arrest them. We don't shoot them. As Yemen's Houthi rebels intensify their attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea, more companies are taking action. Oil giant BP said Monday it's suspending all ship traffic through the Red Sea. Major shipping firms Maersk, Havagloid and CMA CGM Group have already done the same. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. As more shipping companies avoid the Red Sea because of these attacks, the price of oil and consumer goods could rise as a result. NTD's Regina Gibson has more. Analysts say that prices may rise as British Petroleum pauses all shipments in the Red Sea. It joins shipping giants such as Mediterranean Shipping Company, the world's largest shipping company, Maersk, CMA CGM, Evergreen Line, and Hapag Lloyd. These shipping firms conduct around 60% of maritime trade. Around 90% of world trade happens on ships. The firms say the area is not safe because Houthi rebels, a militant Islamic group, are attacking the ships. We cannot stand idle. Any civilian or military vessel is considered a legitimate target for us. A Houthi naval commander says they'll keep on attacking ships until Israel stops attacking Gaza. The Houthi rebels publicly declared their support for Hamas in the Israel-Hamas war. They want to stop ships from sending goods to Israel. We've seen um, quite a few attacks in the last few days with um, damage to, to vessels, and it's not being taken lightly. Shipping analyst John Stoppert says there is great unease in the shipping industry, but it remains resilient. Ships are diverting, but most of the world's ships have not. Bab el-Mandab is still pretty full right now. Uh, you usually see about 17,000 ship transfer or ship transits through this area, obviously heading to and from the Suez Canal. Maritime historian Sal Mercogliano says Egypt will lose millions of dollars every day as this continues. But experts say it's unclear what the overall global impact will be. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Amid nationwide controversy, fewer students are trying to get into Harvard. The number of early admission applications has fallen by almost 20% this year. NTD's Arian Pastar brings us an update on the debate surrounding anti-Semitism on Ivy League campuses. Early admission applications to Harvard reportedly dropped to their lowest level in four years. This year, 17% fewer high school seniors applied for early admission than last year. This comes as Harvard is facing backlash for not condemning anti-Semitism on its campus. Harvard accepts early admission applications only until November 1st, which was before this statement by President Claudine Gay. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. However, the school was already facing controversy at the time because of this letter signed by over 30 student groups. The students blamed the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israel. 
Meanwhile, a top law firm says it will not conduct on-campus interviews at Harvard anymore. The CEO of Edelson PC in Chicago says calling for the genocide of any group of people is indefensible. He says the statements made by Harvard's president hurt the nation. Now, the law firm mostly recruits from Ivy League schools and has earned billions for its clients. For example, a multi-million dollar settlement against Facebook. And GOP Congressman Dan Crenshaw is going after diversity, equity and inclusion, or DEI, on college campuses. Crenshaw is expected to introduce legislation to prohibit colleges from demanding students to write DEI statements. He commented on the bill on Monday, saying the moral bankruptcy in higher education is clearer than ever with the spread of anti-Semitism on college campuses. The DEI bureaucracy is directly responsible. The rule would apply to all colleges that receive federal funding. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, Marvel actor Jonathan Majors found guilty of assault and harassment. The details of those charges and what it could mean for Majors' career. A YouTube vlogger pleads guilty to child abuse charges. Does she show regret? More on her ongoing court case. Visitors planning to go to Maui may need to cancel plans. Hawaii's governor is asking property owners to offer their places up to fire refugees for the long term. More shortly here on NTD News. Welcome back. Marvel actor Jonathan Majors was found guilty today on misdemeanor charges stemming from a domestic dispute with his former girlfriend. Majors was convicted of reckless assault in the third degree, which carries up to a year in jail and a non-criminal charge of harassment. He was acquitted on two similar charges. According to the case, he injured his former girlfriend, Grace Jabari, when she saw a message on his phone sent by another woman. This was last March. Major's lawyers argue that she was acting irrationally at the time and was seeking revenge in the trial. But Jabari's lawyers argued it was part of a pattern of abuse against her. With the verdict, Major loses some hope of saving his reputation. His sentencing is set for February 6th. A popular YouTube vlogger appeared in court to face child abuse charges following her arrest in August. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the update. Ruby Frank, the former family vlogger from Eight Passengers on YouTube, pleaded guilty to four charges of second-degree aggravated child abuse for abusing and starving two of her children. She entered separate guilty pleas Monday for the first three charges, and on the fourth one she said, with profound regret and sorrow for my family and children, guilty. Judge John J. Walton approved the plea deal, setting the sentencing for February 20th. Walton said there won't be any argument about whether prison is the appropriate sentence and there's an agreement about the four counts for running consecutive. The Utah mother of six, along with her husband and business partner, Jody Hildebrandt, were taken into custody after their 12-year-old son escaped through a window and sought help from a neighbor who then alerted the police. The child had duct tape on his wrists and ankles and informed investigators that Jody placed ropes on his wrist and ankles and used cayenne pepper and honey to treat the wounds. Frankie's attorneys released a statement asserting her cooperation with prosecutors and placing blame on Hildebrandt stating, It is our firm belief that Miss Frankie is a devoted mother who unfortunately was led astray. The YouTube channel, which generated over 2 million subscribers, has been removed. Christina Corona, NTD News.
four months after the fire in Maui, locals are still struggling to find places to stay after their homes burned down. Now the governor is asking people who normally rent out to tourists to instead rent long-term to fire refugees. NTD's Eileen Eng has more. Hawaii Governor Josh Green on Friday said he wants 3,000 condos and homes that are normally rented to Maui tourists converted to long-term housing for displaced wildfire survivors who are now living in hotels. The August 8th wildfire wiped out historic Lahaina and left a majority of residents nowhere else to go given the extreme housing shortage on Maui. It's just not okay that we don't have housing for our local people. And so I will propose a moratorium on short-term rentals through emergency rules. I'm sure we will face litigation, but I will do it if we don't get 3,000 units uh, for our people who have been living in hotels. He aims for these measures to provide interim housing by mid-January for two years, while more housing is built on Maui. The lack of stable housing has been a source of stress for Lahaina residents, some of whom had to switch hotel rooms multiple times since the fire. An incentive the Maui County Council is considering is property tax relief. Uh, for a period of time, I believe it starts at 18 months, they won't have to pay any property taxes. And that could help uh, people to the tune of thousands of dollars per month be able to afford to convert over to long-term rentals. Green said they will offer fair market value offers to the people that are renting out their properties to short-term rentals. The governor said FEMA sent letters to 13,000 short-term rental operators across Maui, informing them the agency would offer to pay them the same rent they earned during the previous year for their units. Is it expensive? Yes, it is. Uh, is it necessary? Well, in the short term, it is also necessary because leaving people in hotels, and as of yesterday, it was 6,297 people still in hotels. It's uh, extremely expensive, and it's difficult to live that way for much longer. Green said it is currently costing $350 to $500 a day to house one family in a hotel room once food and services are included. According to Green, there are currently between 12,000 to 14,000 units legally rented on a short-term basis on Maui, including illegal ones. He estimated there could be nearly 25,000. Coming up, Hong Kong's most prominent pro-democracy activist and media mogul standing trial today. Jimmy Lai is facing a litany of charges under Beijing's draconian national security law. And if convicted, he could serve a life sentence. And a Hong Kong pro-democracy activist living in exile shares her thoughts on Lai's trial. What does she say this trial symbolizes? Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Israel and planned a meeting to discuss attacks against commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Meanwhile, the CIA director joined renewed talks for a potential hostage deal. Former President Trump's legal team asked a judge to dismiss the Georgia elections case against him. They argued Trump's claims of fraud in the 2020 elections were protected by the First Amendment right to free speech. The White House touted the economy in its end-of-year memo. This is while President Biden's approval ratings hit an all-time low of 34 percent. Marvel actor Jonathan Majors was found guilty of misdemeanor charges, including one count of reckless assault in the third degree. This stemmed from a domestic dispute with his former girlfriend. 
Ruby Frankie, the former family vlogger from Eight Passengers on YouTube, pleaded guilty to four charges of second-degree aggravated child abuse. Her sentencing is scheduled for February 20th. A long-anticipated trial has begun for pro-democracy media mogul Jimmy Lai. The Hong Kong activist is facing several charges, all under a draconian national security law that Beijing imposed on the city. If convicted, the British citizen could spend the rest of his life in prison. Here are the details. Outside of a courthouse in Hong Kong, dozens waited in line for hours to witness an historical trial. Former media tycoon Jimmy Lai arrived in a prison van as police ramped up security in the surrounding areas. To some, it's a trial for Hong Kong's press freedom and a test for the city's judicial independence. It's very sad that Jimmy and others, including my party members, have been locked up for many, many, many months and years. Unlike many other high-profile figures, Jimmy Lai is considered one of Hong Kong's most prominent critics against Beijing. He was smuggled out of communist China at age 12 and began to climb all the way up to the top echelons of the city's public figures. In 1995, Lai founded Apple Daily, a popular tabloid known for its support for Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. But 2020 marked a turning point when Beijing forced its draconian national security law onto the city. The proposition was largely seen as a way for the CCP to crush dissent outside its jurisdiction. As a result, authorities soon raided and forcibly shut down Apple Daily. Lai himself was also slapped with a litany of charges which could land him a lifetime prison sentence. Lai's son Sebastian said that his father's verdict is likely predetermined. It's a trial with um, three government-appointed judges, um, the, um, no jury, and uh, uh, um, the, the security minister recently boasted of a 100% conviction rate, so at an absolute champ. Sebastian is now leading an international campaign to secure his father's release. After Britain transferred control of Hong Kong to China in 1997, Beijing promised to let the city keep its democratic autonomy. Fast forward to today, the CCP's grip is still tightening as hundreds of pro-democracy activists are forced into prison or exile. Jimmy Lai's trial is expected to last for 80 days. Joining us now to discuss the trial of Jimmy Lai, we have Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Francis Hui, who is currently living in exile. Hui was recently given a hefty bounty by Hong Kong authorities for her political activism. Francis Hui, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Hi, thanks. To begin, you left Hong Kong in 2020 amid Beijing's clampdown on pro-democracy activists. Now, just last week, you woke up to the news that there is a bounty on your head. What was your reaction to that and knowing that you may never be able to freely go back to Hong Kong? 
Well, so I woke up 7 a.m. in the morning and I saw the text and, you know, a bunch of calls on my phone. Um, and it's all about the bounty, the um, Hong Kong dollar, a million dollar bounty that was placed on me. And, you know, obviously I was shocked, but, um, it, you know, last July they actually issued the first round of bounty and arrest warrants on eight other um, overseas activists. And I think we were mostly, you know, most surprised by that news. And after that, we a lot of us kind of just prepare uh, ourselves mentally that this will eventually happen. Um, but I do need to say that, you know, no matter like even though, uh, you know, I have prepared myself for this, you know, it's still shocking. I don't think anyone could be mentally prepared um, for what's come after, you know, all the emotion and the impacts that is going to um, be, you know, happen to our life. Um, and, uh, you, you know, after that, I mean, there are a lot of things that I need to uh, take care of, you know, not just media interview, but also uh, my personal safety, you know, security issue, that kind of thing. What are you being accused of to have this million dollar bounty on you? Yeah, so the, the in the press conference and the paper, the charge sheets that um, the um, bureau published, um, it cited that during um, from the time I was in the U.S. Um, from 2020 to 2022, I was involved in um, engaging with foreign countries and uh, foreign governments, uh, encouraging them to impose sanctions against um, the PRC and also, um, it, you know, activities that are uh, deemed as, you know, hostile activities against the PRC. And that was the reason that they put up um, on, on, on the trust sheets. There is no particular um, evidence um, or, um, you know, incidents that they refer to. But I, uh, you know, I would take the guess that the recently introduced Hong Kong Sanction Act um, it's probably what triggered them and step on their nerves. Um, it is a bill that's introduced bipartisanly in both houses of Congress um, to call for sanction on 49 judges, officials, and prosecutors in Hong Kong who are responsible for the crackdown um, of the civil society and the liberties and freedom that people used to enjoy. Um, and I think judging from the reaction from the government after that bill was um, introduced, um, we can tell that the government was really, really, uh, you, you know, angry about this. And I have publicly, um, you know, uh, uh, shared that I was involved in the development of this bill. And, and throughout that time, I, you know, from the beginning of, you know, seeking uh, congressman to um, to introduce the bill to the point that it was introduced, I was, you know, quite involved in this process. And so I think that was what kind of triggered them in, um, you know, issuing a, a second round of bounties against us. Wow. And um, Hong Kong was an example of the one country, two systems model, but now, given the passage of the National Security Act, all these different things, is it safe to say that Hong Kong is now fully under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, or are there still independent groups in Hong Kong? No, I think um, I think the international community should see Hong Kong and China as one. Um, this has been 
you know, the narrative that we have been uh, putting out to counter the Hong Kong government's narrative. Um, they have been trying to pretend that nothing had happened. Um, you know, like they have settled everything and resolved things that happened in 2019 and 2020. And now the society has um, returned back to normal. And, you know, they put out all these Hello Hong Kong campaigns, you know, come back to our city and do business and travel, things like that. And all of this is to pretend nothing had happened. But at the same time, in courtrooms, in, in detention, in jail, there are over a thousand political prisoners that are sitting in jail in this detention center, either criminalized um, for their political engagement um, or they're waiting for trial. Um, actually, today is, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier before this hit, um, you know, today is Jimmy Lai's um, trial, the start of his trial. He had been in jail for nearly eleven hundred uh, days, which is more than you know uh, three years and a half. And this is all of this is for uh, crimes, uh, national security charges that he has not been convicted for. Um, and all they were hoping is to keep delaying his trial and keeping him in jail and. Perhaps after, you know, when this trial is done, uh, when the sentence comes down, we will probably see, you know, a life sentencing. Um, and, uh, you know, with national security uh, cases, they are allowed to request for no jury. All the national security judges are appointed by the government. So they are obviously complicit with um, the government in, in the crackdown as well. Um, so... Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, it's wise to um, look at Hong Kong as what we see at Hong Kong in the past. It is actually, you know, China's Hong Kong, essentially. And if we started to change that um, lens at looking at Hong Kong, it will help us um, in, in better understanding how things are going to um, unfold and going to uh, continue to, um, you know, worsen. On the note of Jimmy Lyon today being the first day of his trial, how significant is this? And what do you hope is the international community's response to this trial? Yeah, so I think, you know, as I said, the world has waited for this trial to start for a very long time. Um, and uh, the reason why it's so significant is that Jimmy Lyon himself is a 75-year-old, uh, you know, media tycoon who started this pro-democracy newspaper, the Apple Daily. He is a billionaire, and three years ago, he could have, um, he could have left with all his money and, and assets, um, but he chose to stay. And in multiple interviews, he told people that because Hong Kong gave him freedom when he was young. And Hong Kong be, made him uh, made the, the him today, and so he is willing to return, you know, the freedom that he got to the the place that you know nurture him. And I think that's so. You know, everyone who has heard of his story would would all be very in, inspired by his story. And I mean, we all wish that we could be as brave as as he is. And and so I think you know this time. 
you know, in this trial, this is not only Jimmy Lai's trial, it is a trial of uh, media freedom. It's a trial of uh, the legal system. And it's it's a benchmark of how far from grace that, you know, the system and the media freedom have sunk in, in, in this um, city that's once thriving and, you know, uh, that's so freedom loving and everyone basically take that as, you know, our, our dear values. Um, so uh, I, I'm sure, you know, the international community is paying a lot of attention. I would just hope that, you know, during this 80 day trial, um, the, you know, the attention would not go away. Um, it, it, we will expect a really ugly uh, show trial um, to take place. You know, the, the, the prosecutor would obviously uh, provide a you know, a, a tons of evidence of, of his crime, including political connections abroad, you know, articles he have written or, you know, any sort of, um, you know, foreign media outlets, uh, uh, contacts, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it would be really difficult for him. And at the same time, you know, the as I said, the judges are all basically appointed by the government. So, um, you know, this slam trial needs more attention from the international community, um, not just for the first day, but throughout this, um, it's important for us to show support to him and to his family um, and, and to the journalists, uh, you know, who are out there. Um, and I, I think um, we will basically, you know, see how things go um, from looking at uh, his trial to understand what's going on in Hong Kong right now. Francis Hui, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up, Disney's Animal Kingdom welcomes a new baby elephant. See why they are calling the new birth extra special. And in the NFL, another Taylor Swift sighting yesterday. He had overshadowed by the job security of one of the greatest coaches of all time. Entity's Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back. For the first time in seven years, an elephant calf is born at Disney's Animal Kingdom. The baby girl was born last week and already weighs over 200 pounds. Entity's Jason Blair has more. Meet Cora, the newest elephant at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Bay Lake, Florida. The proud first-time mom, Nadira, was pregnant for 22 months before giving birth on Wednesday. The park says the birth is extra special because Nadira was also born at Animal Kingdom. This makes baby Cora the first second-generation elephant born at the park. Nadira and Cora are African elephants, the largest land mammals on Earth. The International Union for Conservation of Nature lists them as critically endangered. The calf and mother will continue bonding for several days before joining the rest of the herd. Jason Blair, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, another big day in the NFL yesterday. It seemed like several teams got crucial wins despite playing without their top quarterbacks. How did they pull that off? Yeah, I'm surprised at how well, like, you know, Cincinnati is doing for one. Jake Browning has bounced around NFL practice squads for like five years now. He was never even drafted. Now he's starting for the Bengals with Joe Burrow out. 
Uh, they're in line for a playoff spot. He's a big reason why. Meanwhile, in Cleveland, they've started now four different quarterbacks this season because of injuries and ineffectiveness. They've also been without their top running back since like week two. They keep winning with a strong defense. Now, Joe Flacco hasn't quite starred for them like Jake Browning has, but he's at least been good enough. They've got a 9-5 record. Kevin Stefanski, I've got to think he's going to be in line for a coach of the year. Now elsewhere in the league, Taylor Swift was at the Chiefs-Patriots game in New England, but her presence was somewhat overshadowed by Bill Belichick's job security. Where do you see this going? Well, the whispers are getting louder for sure. You know, they have the second worst record in the league. This is from a franchise that won a division 17 times out of 18 with Tom Brady at quarterback. They're not used to this. They're 0 for 4 since. To me, it sounds like it really seems like an overall roster talent problem. Now, I'm, it's unclear how much say he has over that. Maybe he does have the final call. Obviously, he's proven he can win with a great quarterback. I mean, six Super Bowl wins is more than almost every other franchise, let alone head coach. If they did get rid of him, I would certainly think there are other opportunities for him to coach in this league. Now, shifting gears to baseball, it's been more than a week since Shohei Otani left the Angels for the Dodgers. We've talked about the Dodgers, but shifting sides, what's been the Angels' reaction? You know, the Angels' general manager basically said yeah, just the other day, you know, life goes on in response to this. You know, they declined, of course, to say whether they were given a chance to match the Dodgers' $700 million offer. Most people think it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Otani clearly wanted to play for a winning franchise. That wasn't the Angels. Now, you could look in, back and criticize them for not trading him when they had a chance. I mean, it seemed like it seemed like it was pretty obvious he was not going to resign with them. But I respected that when they did decide to keep him, that they then doubled down. They got some more players at the trade deadline. Unfortunately, though, it did not work out for them. They, they struggled. Otani then got injured, and now they lose him in the best player of the of the decade, really, uh, for nothing. I'm curious to see now what the Angels do. Do they go out and sign some big free agents, or do they trade some of their better players for young, young prospects and start over? It could go either way. Now, looking at golf news, after the PGA Live merger announcement created some peace between the rival league, all of a sudden the competition appears to be back on with more rumors of players possibly leaving for Live. What's changed here? Well, John Ron already left. Victor Hovland and Tony Finau both appear to be staying after the rumors that they were going to take Liv's uh, big money too. You know, Liv obviously has the deep pockets of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, or PIF as everybody calls it. At this point, you know, the, the PGA is also in negotiations with some big U.S. investors while still negotiating with Liv. Now, I originally didn't see these as related stories. I talked to James Ward, though, who's a senior editor for Golf Today. He's been following the developments with these uh, U.S. investors. Here's what he had to say. When the folks from PIF saw that the PGA Tour was still shopping with other potential investors, they decided to basically fire a shot across the bow, and that's how you get John Rahm into the mix, which is they're still taking players from the PGA Tour and bringing them over to, to live for the money that, I think John Rahm is somewhere in the $300, $400 million range. Liv's product is not a functional brand by any measure or definition. The PGA Tour has a brand. They don't have the capital. That's the distinction between one versus the other. Yeah, so whatever piece the merger announcement seemed to bring seems to be over now. I, it sounds like an ugly negotiation. They still have that end-of-year deadline to get this done. It sounds like, at least for the PGA, that all options, though, are still on the table. 
Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.